Excited today to be talking uh, about a story in the Bible that has really been challenging me personally lately. You know, there are, there are sermons that you preach, uh, and then there are messages that you relay that really were a sermon to yourself, but you just want to take the time to communicate it to, to everyone else. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. It's what I'm going to be doing today. Genesis uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to start. If you've never read the Bible for, before, not familiar, it's easy to find. It's the very first book. So just flip a couple pages, pass the table of contents, and you'll end up at Genesis chapter 1. All right? Heard this story recently about a man named Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is an uh, evangelist, preacher, speaker. He's got a radio show, uh, just a pretty incredible minister. And he was asked to speak at a missions rally. And uh, a service, kind of like our Imagine Sunday, if you will. And, uh, and so he was asked to speak at this uh, missions rally. And while he was there, the pastor of the church asked him to lead a special prayer that God would provide the resources that a medical clinic in another country needed uh, in order to, to operate. They needed $5,000. And so the pastor asked Tony Campolo, will you, will you lead us in a special prayer that God would provide the $5,000 needed for this medical clinic? And Tony Campolo stood up in front of the church and he said, I'm, I've been asked to pray that God will provide $5,000. I'm not going to pray tonight. I'm not going to pray. And I'm not going to pray until everyone in the room gives every dollar that you have on you right now. And they thought he was kidding until he started emptying his pockets. And then everybody started emptying their pockets. And instead of praying for a miracle that night, they instead prayed a prayer of thanksgiving because they raised $8,000 that night instead of praying for God to give, to give $5,000. And, you know, when I heard that story, it, it was moving. And obviously, you know my heart and my, my generous heart and, and what we do so much as a church. But but it was really convicting in two ways. I'm convinced of two things. The first thing I'm convinced of is that, in general, we pray pretty cowardly prayers. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we pray pretty cowardly prayers. And I'm painting with a broad brush a little bit, but uh, I'll just talk about myself. But I think it relates to all of us in the room to a certain extent. We pray pretty cowardly prayers. And I don't know if we do it because we're afraid of... Uh, failing in prayer, not God not answering the prayer. If we don't have faith, I'm not exactly sure why we do it. But what I mean by cowardly prayers is we pray for, um, you know, people who have the flu. And we pray things like, God, we just pray that they would, uh, you know, not have the flu anymore. Knowing that whether God intervenes or not, in four or five days, the flu is probably going to be gone, right? So like that's kind of that prayer, we just kind of throw that in there. Or we pray general prayers. We pray things like, um, God, I just pray that you would uh, help this situation, right? I pray, I pray you would help this situation. Well, what does that mean, right? God, I pray that, um, that everyone involved would just uh, be okay. Well, what does that mean? And I've really been challenged lately, and really over the last few years since I read a book called The Circle Maker that I've given out probably like 50 copies, uh, I've really been challenged to pray very specific prayers, very bold prayers, so that I can know if God actually answered the prayer. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever really gone back and tried to figure out exactly like, 
if God actually answered the prayer? And how would you even know if he did? Have you ever thought about that? The things that you've been praying for in your life, like how would you know if God actually answered it? Are you praying in such a way that you could say like, oh yeah, I prayed about this and this is what God did. Sometimes I think we're afraid to be specific. And so I, I think we just pray in general cowardly prayers like, hey God, we really need $5,000 when there's $8,000 in the room. But the second thing that I'm convicted of and convinced of, and this is really kind of the bigger point, is that we want God to answer prayers when we're the answer. That we want God to answer prayers when, when we're the answer. We pray about things that, I'm not, I, this may sound weird or sacrilegious in some way, I don't know, but we pray about things that we don't need to pray about because we're the answer, right? And, uh, and so that's what I want to talk about today a little bit is, uh, is I want to talk about that second thought about praying for answers when we're the answer. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start with the very first verse. This is exciting. Very first verse of the Bible. Some of you have never read the Bible before. You're starting it right now. You ready? Here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I really need some water again. I don't know why. Like that's a, whatever. Anyway, all right. I'm frustrated about my coffin. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You've probably heard that. Right? It's the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is not the point of the message today, but I've always loved this verse because I love the idea that the Spirit of God is hovering somewhere that feels formless and empty. Like maybe today your life feels formless and empty. Just know that like the Spirit of God is hovering there. And I, that's not the point, but I've always loved that. And then it says, uh, over the surface waters, then God said, yeah, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. I love, I love this verse, these verses, and I love this about God. And even if you're not religious, you probably knew this was in the Bible, that, that there was nothing. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And I love that because I love that I serve a God who can just speak things into existence. I love that I serve a God who's so powerful, that's, who's so able, who's so miraculous. And I'm even kind of describing him as if there is a limit to his power, like, wow, he has this ability. No, no, like there's nothing he can't do. Right. And so whatever it is that we're facing in here today, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that we're praying for, whatever it is that we need God to do, I love verses like this that remind me that God just speaks it. And it's like, there it is. There was no, there was no light. There was, there, was not, there was just this dark and formless world. And God said, I've got an idea. Light. Boom. There it was. That's the kind of God that we serve. So there should be no situation in our life. There should be no scenario where we fear or are uh, overwhelmed by the thought that it will never come together, thank you very much, because we serve a God who is able to do anything, speak anything into existence. It should give you confidence. It should give you boldness to pray bigger prayers. Uh, I don't know if anybody in here uh, has ever spent much time in Ikea. Anybody ever been to an actual Ikea store? Let me see your hand if you've been to Ikea store. I, 
I love Ikea. I'm just going to go ahead and confess. I love Ikea. Uh, we'll stop and buy something even if we don't need something, if we're going through a town because we feel like, oh, we don't have an Ikea in our town, so we'll stop and buy another coffee table or whatever it is. And, uh, and so Andrea was on the Ikea bandwagon long before me, and she said it was a furniture store, and I'm like, I don't really care. She's like, let's go. And then I went, and it's not a furniture store. It's like a, it's a theme park for adults. And so, and so um, if you've never been to Ikea, let me just, you probably know what it is. Let me just fill you in. Ikea is... Um, uh, what, what country is it? It's Swedish. Swedish. Yeah, it's, it's this modern, all this modern furniture that's relatively inexpensive. And, uh, and what's cool about Ikea is that when you walk through Ikea, you see it set up and it looks so cool, right? You're, you're, like, you're walking through there and you thought, yeah, I've never really thought that I needed that in my bedroom. But now that I see this 300 square foot bedroom that's got 74 accessories, like... I want a 300 square foot bedroom. Like I, I want my room to look like that. I don't really need new kitchen cabinets, but those look incredible. Like I would love that. You know, I don't really have any books, but I'll take that 74, you know, uh, size bookshelves. Like so, whatever it is, you look at it and you think, man, that's incredible. I, I love that. That's what I want my house to look like. And um, and so yeah, I'll I'll take that. And so you get excited and you get the little slip and you you go down and you walk into this warehouse and you find uh, your item, your cabinets, your bookshelf, your kitchen table, whatever it is, and, and you go, and when you go to get it, it doesn't look like what it looked like on the showroom floor. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, so you go and you're like, wow, that's an incredible bookshelf that could hold 5,000 books, but when you go to get it off the warehouse floor, it's in a humongous box that will not fit in your car. Right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and so you get it, and, you, and you, you take it up, and you pay for it, and you go home, and then you, you take it out of the box, and you're required to assemble it. There's assembly required, right? Now, I, I, you, I don't know how well you know me, but you got to know, if you do know me at all, that, like, that's what hell is going to be like for me, is tools and assembly required. Like that is what, that's purgatory, whatever you want to call it, like that is it for me. The other day our, our, our microwave broke down and uh, broke, it broke down, it broke. And, uh, and so I went to Lowe's and I, I bought a, a new microwave, which I love spending money on things like that. And, um, and so I bought like a $260 microwave and uh, there was a sign there that said, we'll install for $99. And I'm like, it's a $260 microwave. I'm not paying $100 for someone to install this. How hard could it be? Right? right? You ever thought that you ever said those words? How hard could it be? It's not that big a deal. You, un, you unscrew the screws on the old microwave. You put the new microwave in. You screw it in. How hard could it, how hard could it be? So I, I get the microwave home and... Uh, I take off the old microwave, and I think this is great. I'll just slide it on. Problem, not the same name brand. So I've got to then take the, 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 the bracket or whatever it would be called, if you know what you're doing, off of the wall. Then I've got to put mine on. The problem is I've got to find a stud. Some of you are studs at finding studs. I put bullet holes in walls. I finally get it. I go to hang it up. The thing's too low, I take it down, I move it, I put it up, now it's too tall. Three hours later, the whole microwave is disassembled in my kitchen floor because I dropped three screws down inside the microwave. Yes. This is not a preacher exaggeration. 
I have the microwave taken apart on the kitchen floor because I'm looking for three screws that fell down in there because I don't have the fancy magnetic drill that some of you guys have, okay? You know what I'm thinking at that moment? is all it would have taken. Sure, the man would have walked in judging me, knowing that I'm a grown man who paid him $99 to install a $260 microwave. But at this point, I don't even care because I've disassembled a whole microwave, so I'm pretty confident it's not even going to work when I do get it installed up on the wall. That's what hell's going to be like. It's going to be assembling things and installing things. And every time we buy a kid for a toy, or a bright toy for a kid, every time we go to Ikea, there's always these signs. There's always these messages on the box. There's always these things, this message that says some assembly required. Just some. It's just some assembly required. And then when they're feeling really brave and they want to make you feel like a terrible human being, they'll put a time estimate on it. This should probably take less than two hours. This, you could probably assemble, if you know what you're doing, sir, reading this box right now, you should probably do this in 60 minutes. And so my dad's rule, because we're pretty similar, is times it by five. This is always my dad's rule. Whatever you read on the box, times it by five. And that's how many weekends will it take? Like you just times it by five to figure out what, what you're doing. So, so here's my point in saying all that. I love that I serve a God. Who, who just speaks things into existence. Right. I, I love that. Here's the problem, is that most of the things that I see in my head that I want God to do are already assembled. Like I see miracles in my head and in my life, like the Ikea showroom floor. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but like when I see the, a vision for my family, it looks like the Ikea showroom floor. It does not look like it's boxed up and some assembly is required. When I see my daughter walking across the high school graduation stage knowing she's like a normal human being and isn't like crazy, like I see the finished product, loving Jesus, marrying some great man who's not trouble and, you know, whatever. I see my grandkids. I I see the church at a certain point, whatever it is. I see the finished product in in my mind. And it never occurs to me that there may be some assembly required, right? So flip a couple of pages over, a couple of pages over in Genesis, going to Genesis chapter six. This is a story that's really been resonating with me. It's like the most famous kid story ever. Genesis chapter six. This is a story about Noah and God uh, speaking to Noah and, and, and wanting to, to start over really. Like he's going to start over with humanity and so many questions come from that, but we're not going to deal with those today. Uh, But starting with verse 11, it says, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said, you remember what we just read in Genesis chapter 1? I love it. Let me just go back real quick. So the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the waters, and God was hovering there. Then God said, let there be light. You remember when we read that in Genesis 1? Okay, so in Genesis 6, God saw the earth had been corrupt, and it was filled with violence, and he observed all it, and everyone on the earth was corrupt. So God said, this would be a great point if I was telling the story. So God said, let there be earth 2.0. 
Or God could say, let there be an ark. Or God could say, let there be no more human beings on earth because, because God has the ability to just speak it. So here we are reading Genesis 6, verse 11. So God said, God said. So I would expect the next words in the scripture to be, and God said, let there be a really large boat. That's not what it says. Keep reading verse 13. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy the living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I'll wipe them, all, uh, wipe them out along with the earth. Build a large boat. So God said to Noah, after he saw what needed to be done. Now, in Genesis 1, God saw what needed to be done, and he said, let there be light. In Genesis 6, he sees what needs to be done, and he says to Noah, build a large boat. I get frustrated sometimes with why God won't just do things for me, and he would ask me to do it. Like, so, so the thought that runs through my mind when I read Genesis chapter 6 is like, why wouldn't God just speak a boat into existence? Why wouldn't God just start over? But God didn't speak a boat into existence. He spoke an idea into the heart of a man. He spoke a vision. He spoke a dream. He, he, he spoke a finished product. He spoke an, spoke an idea of a large boat into a man. Why would he do that? What's the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 6? Well, the difference is no one can create light when there's no light. But you can build a boat. Man can't create light, but man can build a boat. And so God shows up and he sees the world's awful and he says, Noah, I want you to build I want you to build a boat. Here's what I wrote down. God will never ask you to do something you're not capable of doing. But he's probably not going to do something for you that you can do for yourself. I'm not talking about some self-help, you don't need God, motivated power, speak it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those things in our life that we see in our head that are finished products that we just want God to do. And God, instead of God speaking it into existence, he wants to speak to you about it and have you do something about it. So one more verse I just want to read to you, Genesis chapter 6, verse 21. Just skip down just a little bit farther. And, and, and so God, this is crazy. I mean, I don't have time to read it all. But God just gives like all these instructions. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out, some assembly required. Then construct decks and stalls throughout the interior. Make it 450 feet long, 75 feet, 45 feet, 18-inch opening. I mean, it just gives all these, these, these instructions. But verse 21, the last verse, this is the last thing. What we're about to read is the last instruction that God gives Noah. So he said, like, all these very specific detailed things— I don't know how to do those types of things, but I do know somebody told me one time you want to measure twice and cut once. Is that right? That's right. So he gives them all these instructions, some very specific details, which sounds like something God would do. And then in verse 21, this is the last instruction he gives to Noah. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. You're like, what's the big deal? This is crazy to me because if this verse means what I think it means, 
I think it means that Noah could build this boat, but if he forgets to get enough food, everybody's going to starve to death on the boat. Like, how crazy is it that God tells Noah, Noah, if you don't pick up ramen noodles, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. So, yeah, I want you to build the boat. Historians believe it took 100 years to build the boat, 100, 100 years. And so he says, I'm, you're going to take 100 years, man. You're going to cut down the trees. You're going to build these things. You know, you're going to build this thing, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be incredible. It's a 100-year project you're working on. And, 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 like, I can just imagine 100 years later, Noah is like, wow, what an accomplishment. All right, everybody get on board. They close the door. It starts raining, and all of a sudden goes... He looks at his wife. He's like, you, did you go to the grocery store? You picked up the food, right? She's like, no, I thought, you, I thought you picked up the food. Like, wait, nobody picked up the food? And it's almost as in verse 21, God is like, all of this supernatural, all of this miraculous, all this incredible stuff, hey, listen, don't forget to take enough food on board. I love and hate these Bible verses because it reminds me that I play a key role in God's most miraculous acts. I love them because it's like I get to be a part of the story. Like Noah, the boat was named after Noah. It was Noah's ark, right? Like that's incredible. But I also hate these verses because it reminds me that God rarely provides supernatural help for something that I can do naturally. Like I guess Noah could have said like, God, will you provide food on board? And God's like, I mean, I guess I could, but you could just go to the store and get it, Right? Which raises the question, how often do you ask God to do something you could have done yourself? Here's a couple examples. Um, God can heal a marriage that refuses to go to counseling. He can. He's able to just speak it. Like, God, I pray that they would be attracted to one another again forever and not fight and and never be disappointed and always get the benefit of the doubt. And then, like, you, you blink and it's like, and it's amazing again. He could do that because he's able to do that. But instead of speaking it into existence, he's probably going to speak to you about it. And he's going to give you some instructions and some things that you know you need to do. God can lift a family out of debt who won't live on a budget. He can. Like he, he can. He could just say, God, he could just be like, let there be debt free. Let there be million dollars. Let there be what he could do that. He's perfectly able to do that. But we're asking for supernatural help for something we can do naturally. God can speak to someone who forgets to pray. Totally can. Totally can. But man, it seems like he speaks when we pray. He can deliver an addict in secret. Probably. I mean, no, not probably. He can. No, he can do that. But usually through confession is where we're made free. God could speak your miracle into existence, but he's probably going to speak to you about it, and he's going to give you instructions. So here's a couple of things I wrote down. Please hear my heart. No, like I'm not trying to be mean. I'm preaching to myself. Do I need a miracle or do I need work ethic? Do I need a miracle or do I need self-discipline? Do I need a miracle or do I need to grow up? Like, it goes back to the first point I said about cowardly prayers. Like, 
if I handled everything that I can handle, not that like I could pray more, doesn't, I could pray hours, but I'm saying like, if I, if I never prayed about the things that I could control and begin to only pray about the things in life where something has to be spoken to existence because it's impossible any other way, what would my life look like? What would it look like? God usually chooses to produce extraordinary miracles through ordinary obedience. Like if you exercise and eat right, you'll lose weight. And that's still miraculous because God created it that way. That's still miraculous because God created the system. He could, as you're shoving a little Debbie into your mouth, cause you to lose weight. He could do that because he is 100% able. Matter of fact, let's grab our hand of a neighbor. Let's pray for that right now. <laughs> he could. And look, I'm being extreme, but you, you understand the point I'm making. It's that he usually does extraordinary miracles through ordinary obedience. So what if God's already done the hard part? He's just waiting on you to do your part. Is there something that you could do that seems ordinary, but once God does his part, it becomes extraordinary? Okay? Two questions I'm going to leave you with, and then we're going to pray and and get out of here. Well, we're not going to get out of here. We're going to sing some songs together. Two questions. Number one, am I praying for truly miraculous things? This has been a real convicting, challenging thing for me my relationship with God as I think through the things that I'm praying for. Am I praying for truly miraculous things? Like speak light into existence where there was no, there was just formless and nothing and darkness. Like speaking it into, like God, I need you to do it. Only you could do it. There's, I don't matter how many hours I work. It doesn't matter how much I save. It doesn't matter how much I love. Like God, if you don't save my husband, he's not going to be saved. This is going to take a miracle, so I'm going to pray about that. God, like, we want that building, but it's not even for sale, and if it was for sale, it's like we, we could save for 15 years, and we still couldn't get enough money to get into that building. So, God, you're going to have to do that. Am I praying about truly miraculous things in, in, in my life? Like, truly miraculous, like, I'm afraid to even admit out loud that I'm praying about them. Because people be like, bro, you're, that's pretty crazy. Which is just another point that is not the point of the message, but I really want friends in my life who don't think my prayers are crazy. You know what I mean? Like, that I'm not uh, embarrassed to bring up like, oh yeah, yeah, Andrew and I are praying about that. And they're like, oh wow, yeah, that's, that's incredible. We're gonna pray with you about that too. As opposed to like, what? I mean, yeah, God can, but that's probably a little far-fetched. It's like, eh, you're out. Like I'm looking for some, some people. Anyway, okay, number two, second question is this. Am I doing everything I can do? Am I praying truly, mirac- am, I, am I praying for something truly miraculous? And then number two, am I doing everything I can do? And I don't like this question because this question's so hard and it makes me accountable and I'm motivated today, but I'm not motivated tomorrow. And I was motivated for three months when I'm motivated anymore. Like, but like, am I doing everything I can do? 
like God, prayer is about just talking to God anyway. So like, God, we're talking here, but like, I'm not gonna ask you to do that for me anymore because I can do that. I can do that. God, I, I may need you to miraculously change my wife's heart, but I can communicate more. I can build more trust. I can be home from work sooner. I can go to counseling. I, like I can do those things, but you probably will miraculously have to change the heart. But I'm not gonna ask you to like do things that I can do. So are you doing everything that you can do? And if you're not, the point of today's message is not guilt, it's not shame. It's not like, well, you're terrible. Don't ever pray again. Like, no, the Bible says pray about everything. Go to God, pray about it, talk about it, pray about everything. But just start today. Start today. Start today. You can do it. I, I believe that you can. And I, I, I love you. And I want you to know, like, this is a place. Hope City Church is a place. So, like, we're never, our, we're, we're never uh excited that you're down. We're never excited that you're failing. We don't want to add to your misery. We don't want to pour salt into a wound. We're not judging you. We're not, this is not like, oh, we knew, we told you so. Like, no, no, no. Like, this is a place, like, we just want you to know we believe in you. We love you. We actually are expecting great things for your life. We want you to know God loves you. Like, that's, that's what this place is. And so my hope for you as your pastor is that you would pray for truly miraculous things in your life. Like truly embarrassed to talk about it out loud things in your life. And, and two, you would do everything that you can do. And I would just say this as I close, like what I'm learning for me is that God cares way more about changing me than changing my circumstances. So most of the things in my life that I'm miraculously wanting him to change or do away with is exactly what he wants me to deal with right now in this season because he wants to change me instead of change my circumstances. But that's another message for another time, all right? Are you doing everything you can do? And are you praying truly, truly asking for truly miraculous things? Let's pray.